you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome. I got my mojo. To the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to 2017 on the Mojo Radio Show. Great to have you company. Great to have you on board for the year ahead. We have had the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show completely detailed inside <laughs> and out. Ready to hit the road and bring you some, honestly, we've got some fantastic guests coming up, top tips, loads of gold to help you get your mojo working in and out of the workplace, wearing the tour leader's hat and driving the big red bus here at the show. Robbo, um, how was your break, mate? My break was really good, thanks. And how was yours? Uh, good. Actually, yeah, it was good. I wouldn't say it was a cracker. And the reason I say it was good is that I got a lot of emails and messages through social over the Christmas and New Year break from listeners who have had a hard time over Christmas and the New Year break. And I think it's just worth just a a little, you know, hello to those people because some people were forced to face some pretty hard times over the Christmas and New Year break. And um, they sent us a note saying thank you to the show for helping them through those times and giving them a chance to reflect and get their mojo working in and out of work. So we hope the show has given you a little nudge along to all those folks who contacted us and we hope things are looking a bit brighter for you. So um, We should also send a big shout out to a hardcore listener of ours, Tasha Wells, who actually mentioned you and I by name in a very... Well, not very personal, but a sort of personal post on LinkedIn over the break too. Said some nice things about you and I. Super fan. But, 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 but don't touch your dial because you've got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. So we've got a, a themed month in January. This is an idea mm. that Robbo had back at the end of 2016, which seems such a long time ago now. It uh, does, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's going to be themed week by week, mind, body, spirit and business. And we are going to jump in to the mind in a very short minute. We're going to start to talk about positive psychology. Wonderful guest. Before we do that, uh, mate, I believe you made a couple of uh, decisions over the New Year period. Oh, I haven't made a couple of decisions, but I've made one very big one that I, I've decided I really need to work on. I was thinking over the Christmas New Year break about my 2016 and how I was going to make my 2017 better. Um, it was actually happening while I was putting together the the in-between episode, actually. Um, and something that I really thought I had to work on was stop making excuses. Like I'm constantly making excuses for, oh, look, I'll do that later because I'll do this now or, you know, putting off the hard stuff or, you know, the stuff that I don't want to do or, or even making excuses in terms of deadlines sometimes and all that sort of stuff. So I've, I'm really going to put my mind this year to, um, to stop making excuses about stuff and, and really digging in and getting stuck in. So, um, I thought that uh, maybe you might like to share one that you have um, and it might inspire some of our listeners to make up their own to get started on in 2017. I, uh, I read a blog over the Christmas period which really stopped me in my tracks and it was by Derek Sivers, who I've been in contact with now for the last year trying to get him on the show. Mm. Derek has a super popular blog and he's been on some of the biggest podcasts in the world and is very, very popular. And he was a guy who owned CD Baby back in the day, sold it, and he's just got an incredible view on life. A decision he made only two or three days ago 
as part of 2017, he said that in order to give yourself space to do the things you want to do, you have to let go of some things. His comment in his blog was, people normally let go of things that they don't want to do, which is easier for some people than others. His view was he's going to let go of something that he loves. And quite often, if you want to disrupt your world, have it a, give it a real shake up and make some quantum leaps forward in whatever it may be in your life, you've got to let go of some things. And he's going to let go of some things he loved. And that really got me thinking. So I am going to give up something that I dearly love this year. I won't announce it yet. But that thought, I thought, was a wonderful premise for our listeners and for us, is to think about, well, what do you really love? And are you prepared to give it up? Because that thing normally takes up a lot of your time, your mental energy, your spirit. Are you prepared to give it up to make room for something which could be the next thing, which could be exciting? So I thought that was a really thought-provoking blog. Giving up coffee, that's a pretty big decision. (laughs) Yeah, it's too big a decision. I'm not ready to cope with that yet. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, late last year, we had a very good friend of ours on the show, episode 98, and the lady was Carolyn Adams Miller, who is an expert in grit, resilience, determination, and has been a real popular guest on our show. Carolyn's been on twice. Once we'd finished recording, Carolyn Offair said to us, you have to speak to Professor Lee Waters you would love speaking to Lee. Now, Lee Waters is an expert in positive psychology. Positive psychology is a a branch of psychology that uses scientific understanding and interventions to help us basically achieve a great life and looking at from what can we do with the mind as opposed to jumping to psychology, which is sometimes treating mental illness. The findings in positive psychology have indicated that happiness is improved through lots of different things, including relationships with, you know, family, spouse, friends, uh, the network of people you mix with in social clubs, organisations. And quite often financial success, people think, brings happiness. But it's been shown in a lot of studies that once you hit a certain amount of money, and you go from being in the lower income bracket into middle income or higher income, the money does have nothing to do with happiness. And that's kind of the basis of positive psychology. And our guest, Professor Lee Waters, the PhD, uh, is a psychologist, a researcher, consultant, author, and public speaker, and works on bringing positive psychology into not only us as grown-ups, but also kids and teenagers and through organisations. Now, Lee is a TEDx Melbourne speaker and has been described as part inspiring and talented educator, part disruptor, which we love, and champion for change, and part advocate for the power of positivity. So, Professor Lee Waters, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. It's so cool having a professor on. I mean, you make us sound so much smarter off when we say Professor Lee Waters. So um, it's, it's, it's nice <laughs> kind having... Of like the verbal equivalent of wearing glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robo's, Robo's tried that and it just, does, it just does not sit well. Don't talk to me about glasses. I just got my first pair. Oh, no. So did I. 
I just got my no. first pair too. Oh, I'm feeling old, Lee. My kids laughed at me the first time I wore them. Yeah, oh, well, my kids have, did more than laugh. But, yeah, I got them in December at the at the ripe old age of 45 and I, I'm very lucky in that the optometrist just happens to be one of my long-term girlfriends since I was 15 and I sat down on the chair and, and I've been writing this book, you see, so I said, I'm blaming it on the book. I'm spending way too much time in front of the computer. And she, she very gently said, it's nothing to do with the book. It's to do with the numbers four and five. <laughs> <laughs> Make of it what you will. My eyes are old. Oh, oh no. It's terrible. So you are a professor and you wear glasses and you're an expert in positive psychology. You sound awfully clever. <laughs> <laughs> With the glasses. To start us off, Lee, what does what does a professor of positive psychology do? Like, what's just for a, a layman? What sort of stuff would you normally do when you're day to day? Day to day, okay. So, I, my day to day role at the university is sort of broken up into three broad buckets, if you like. And the first one is research. The second one is sort of the teaching and the application of the science of positive psychology. And then the third one, um, in my case, is, you know, a leadership role. So working with the centre, getting our grants, um, making sure that the centre is operating well here at the university. And so there's kind of three broad things that I'll do. And some days will be purely a research day and so that's when I might um, put my glasses on and sit down and uh, do some sort of designer survey to work with. Um, I mainly work with kind of young kids at school or organisations or parents, design some kind of survey that helps me as a researcher to get a better understanding of one of the many topics within the field of positive psychology. I mean, one of my sort of favorite topics at the moment, and that's what I've written a book about is strengths-based parenting. So um, going out and speaking to parents and surveying parents and also surveying their teenage children and uh, younger children around what does a strength-based parent look like? What are the what's the impact of having a parent who knows and helps you to utilize your strengths? What particular aspects of well-being um, or achievement does it sort of highlight and amplify? So that's the the research side of things, as an example, and then. Teaching at the university, so I teach into our undergraduate program and I teach into our Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program and um, and I love doing that. That's one of my favourite parts of my role is just connecting with curious minds who are interested in taking the science and making the world better. And then you know, I also do a lot of sort of teaching outside of the university, a lot of work with schools and corporations and um it's not called teaching, it's called facilitation or kind of um, consulting, but essentially, you know, it's teaching and it's taking these ideas and the science that's been generated at the university and making it real and applicable so that people can get a better life as a result of that science. So your your book is coming out in the mid-2017. Let's, let's dive into that straight up. If Robbo and I wanted to become strength-based parents... What are some of the things that we need to consider in order to move towards that without giving away too much for the book, but as a preface for what we might expect from the book, how do we do that? What's the stuff that we need to consider? Mm, that's a really lovely question. And um, I guess there's sort of a couple of ways to answer that. And the, the first way really is that strength-based parenting, it's a particular style of parenting where, you know, as a parent, you make a committed decision to focus first on the positive qualities in your children focus first on their potential before we zoom in on their problems and their weaknesses and their 
idiosyncrasies and faults and flaws. And so it really is kind of a bit of a philosophical shift as a parent to say, I know that um, my son or my daughter, in the same way that I have both strengths and weaknesses, you know, we're complex individuals, but I'm really going to approach this parenting role in a way where my first choice is to always look for what are the strengths, what are the talents, what are the positive qualities in my child? And from that, then really accept that a big part of our role as a parent, you know, as we're guiding the development of this young person is to focus on helping them to better understand what their own strengths are and to cultivate and use those strengths as much as we can in daily life. So that's kind of the philosophy behind it, yeah. I I understand that from a parenting perspective Mm -hmm. and we're going to dig into that a little bit during the show. If somebody is listening to this and goes, well, I'm not a parent yet. Yes but I work in the corporate environment or I work with a team of people. I think it was Marcus Buckingham wrote a book some years ago called First Know Your Strengths. Is the philosophy of what you're talking about, is that the same thing that would apply philosophically in a workplace or with a, a, a footy team you're coaching or with a community group? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea is that in all of those contexts that we focus first on strengths and building out strengths before we seek to um, fix weaknesses. And the, but the thing, the interesting thing is that in all of those contexts you're talking about in, in families, in workplaces, um, on the footy team, in schools, which is uh, the latter is where I do a lot of my work, is that we often um, operate from this assumption that, yes, we understand people have strengths and weaknesses, um, but we kind of leave the strengths to take care of themselves. We think, oh, well, the child's already good at that. They've already got that covered. I don't need to spend any time or energy developing that or mentoring it. Likewise, in the workplace, you know, you have, I have a big team here at the Centre of Positive Psychology and um, I could readily make the assumption that, well, this guy's already good at statistics or this guy's already good at writing papers or she's really, she's already a great teacher. So I'm not going to invest any of my um, time in helping her or him develop that quality further because that's kind of covered already. And we make the assumption that the best use of our time is to pull people up in the areas where they're performing poorly or weakly. Um, But actually what the research is showing is that, um, that's a bit of a false assumption. And if we start from a platform of strength and we build on those, that's ultimately what creates higher levels of well-being and higher levels of reaching your potential than spending most of our time trying to kind of correct flaws and weaknesses. You've said that 95% of research is focused on investigating and removing negative states and it's not about creating positive states. Can you just talk me through that and how that sort of ties back to what we've just been discussing? So that was um, a very large-scale analysis that one of my PhD students and I did a couple of years ago, and we basically went into um, the psychology science data. There's a big library that's hosted by a publication company, a publishing company in University of Pennsylvania. It's called Thomson Reuters. And they are, um, they have like the world repository of any peer reviewed scientific psychology journal article that's ever been published. It's a huge, big library. And together with my PhD student, Ruben Rusk and I, we got access to the library from this publishing company. They gave us access from the years 1992 to 2010. And so we had this massive data set um, of over 1.8 million peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. 
And we went into that data set and we, and this is where I have to give Ruben credit. Ruben, before Ruben came to do a PhD with me, he was an engineer. So, um, he made a sort of quite a significant life change from being an engineer to doing a PhD in positive psychology. But what, again, is playing to his strengths. So what he brought into the very start of um, his PhD was not so much great background knowledge on psychology because it hadn't been his field and that's an unusual pathway. Most PhD students in psychology have already studied six or eight years of psychology. But what he did have was exceptional mathematical thinking and mathematical ability. And so what we're able to do with these 1.8 million, 8, 1.8 million journal articles was Ruben developed um, an algorithm. So we could go in and mine that data and code what percentage of the, this huge data set of psychology research, what percentage was interested and had scientifically studied positive qualities or strengths in humans and how it is that we build those compared to the opposite. You know, what percentage of the research is looking at um, our pathologies, our weaknesses, our our behaviour, our poor relationships, everything that can go wrong with us and how do we fix it. And what we found over that 18-year timeline was that uh, 95% of the articles were classified, uh, were, were studying what can go wrong with us and how do we fix it. And only 5% of the papers were scientifically studying this question, you know, what is right with us um, as a human being, as a as a football team, as a workplace, as a school classroom, as a family? What is right with us? And how do we put time and energy and effort into amplifying what is right with us? What are our strengths? Do you think that has contributed to the way that we individually look at things, Lee. And I'll, I'll give you the example is um, if there is a, a golfer listening to the show, they walk up to the tee, they look out in front of them and there's a massive water hazard. And the first thing they do is, I better get an old ball because all they're focusing on is where they don't want the ball to go. And then of the group that are playing, one guy walks up and says, stand back, boys, this is going straight down the fairway. And they pretty much all the other guys think he's a smart ass, right? So why, what's the psychology behind this? Is the stuff that 95% of research we're talking about, has that framed our thinking? Why do we tend to focus on what we don't want to happen as opposed to focusing on what we do want to happen? Yeah. So look, it's, it's kind of this two levels there. Firstly, let's just start with the individual. Let's start with those individual golfers who um, the bulk of whom come in and say, I better use the old ball. Um, and there's a lot of research now to to show us that we have, each of us individually have what psychologists call this inbuilt negativity bias. So our brains are wired to, whether we know it or not, at a subconscious level, our brains are constantly scanning the environment for the threats and for what can go wrong, the problems in our environment. So even if you are, even if you have a very cheerful personality type, even if you're, you know, that sort of very bright and cheerful personality type, you still have this subconscious inbuilt negativity bias. It's, it's a universal phenomenon 
um, and every individual has it. And the reason that we have it is because it provided us with an evolutionary advantage. If you think, if you go back to our ancestors on the savannah, um, can you imagine what happened to the person who didn't have that inbuilt negativity bias, who wasn't constantly scanning the environment with that negative frame in mind, you know, where's the threat, where's the threat, what can go wrong, what can go wrong? The, those um, ancestors who didn't have the built-in negativity bias didn't survive because it was it's a survival mechanism. The thing is that our brain hasn't caught up with sort of modern-day society, so we still have this inbuilt negativity bias. We're still scanning for what can go wrong. It's no longer like a big beast that's going to kill us. It's the water on the golf course. So we're sort of misapplying that negativity bias. And it does mean that we do tend to have um, a natural tendency because it provided us with a survival mechanism. We have this natural tendency to first look for what can go wrong. Um, so you can imagine how that translates into parenting. Even even the best, most cheerful, most loving, loving parents have this inbuilt negativity bias. Um, and so many of the parents I work with sort of say to me, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I seem to always zoom in on this fault, this flaw, something, you know, wrong with my child. I don't want to do that. I don't know why I keep doing that. And until they learn about strength-based parenting and how to have some of these techniques that start to re-pattern the brain, you, you are always going to go for the negative. But it does speak to your earlier question too. It's not just at the individual level. That individual level sort of translates up into a really kind of societal level. We have a deficit-oriented society by and large where, you know, our um, government expenditure, our resources, the research questions that psychology people ask are all about what can go wrong and how do we fix it. And the reality is that the questions that we ask determine what we see. And if my profession for that 18-year period is largely asking what's wrong with us and how do we fix it, then the science that's coming out from my profession is providing us with a lot of answers about what's wrong with us, but little about what's right with us. So the questions that we ask to determine the reality that we receive at, at a research level, at a parent level, at a, at a boss level, at a footy coach level. So is that when I'm going for the old ball, is the default I'm going to hit the ball in the water or this business won't work or all the reasons my presentation might fail and whatever the situation is, you you fall to that default, which is that negative voice, is asking yourself a different question, a more empowering question, is that the is that the way to break the pattern, is to start a new pattern of thinking? Is that is that what you're suggesting? That's definitely one of the ways. So, so start to tune into the implicit questions that we ask ourselves all the time during the day. If you really stop and think about it, um, a lot of our behaviour is first generated by a question that we've asked ourselves. And we ask ourselves hundreds of questions every day. You know, you get up in the morning and you ask yourself, do I hit the snooze button or do I get up? And then you ask yourself, how long have I got for the shower? And then you ask yourself, do I have cereal? Do I have toast? Do I have juice with that? Do I skip brekkie here and grab a take away coffee on the way? Do I catch public transport? <laughs> do I drive my car? You know, so we're we're constantly asking ourselves questions during the day. Now, some of those questions are sort of routine questions and they're the examples I've just provided. But we also ask ourselves a lot of questions that determine how we engage with the environment, our levels of optimism, our levels of pessimism. And so to use your example, when, we, when we're when we standing in at 
um, on the golf course, just start to monitor what is the question I'm asking myself here. Because if, if you're grabbing the, the old ball, then obviously you've asked yourself the question, which is what will happen if the ball lands in the water? So you've made an assumption immediately that the ball's going to land in the water. Mm. So then say, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't ask myself that question. Maybe I should ask myself the question, what would happen if I aced it and the ball went way over the water? Then you're asking a different question. It leads to a different action. Liz, is part of this to tie back to gratitude? I know gratitude is something you talk about and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on gratitude, but is part of breaking the pattern, and I, I suspect if the pattern becomes too prevalent and too powerful, one could fall into kind of de- depressive state and I'm, and I'm just hallucinating on that. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. And is gratitude a form of asking yourself a more empowering question to drag yourself out of these negative thoughts? Yes, definitely. So, um, you know, if if you're continually looking at the world through the lens of pessimism, um, continually looking at this is what can go wrong and then making the assumption that because it can go wrong, it it is likely to go wrong for you, that certainly has... um, ramifications for your psychological health. And there's lots of research now to show that uh, pessimism, a pessimistic outlook as opposed to an optimistic outlook is significantly linked to things like depression and anxiety. And so, you know, bringing that up to gratitude, I really see gratitude as part of an antidote against that. Because if you think about the basic definition of gratitude and its basic definition is that you have the capacity to notice and appreciate the good things that are going on in your life. That's essentially what gratitude is as its core. It's the ability or the capacity to notice first and then appreciate the good things that are happening in your life. So where gratitude breaks down, it may be firstly because you're not noticing the good things. And good things don't always have to be big things. I think that a lot of us make this assumption that, well, you know, I'll 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 be happy when I get the next promotion. I'll be happy when I get this amazing um, husband or wife. I'll be happy when I get this great car. I'll be happy when I finally get this trip that I've been longing for. Um, I would say that if you're tying your happiness to waiting for those big things, then it's not effective. Um, And actually the better way to go is to start to notice and appreciate the little good things that happen in your day every day. Um, There's always big things that are negative in most people's life. No one is free of pain or suffering. Um, That's just part of this thing that we call life. But the more that you cultivate an attitude of gratitude, the more that you train yourself to look around and notice and appreciate the small things. And it could be Um, the feel of sunshine on your back. It could be the smell of coffee as you walk past your favorite cafe. It could be um, an email in your inbox from about a project that you're feeling good about or excited about or um, a quick text message from one of your friends. These are these little moments of good that you can appreciate and kind of latch onto and they build up your bank account. So definitely gratitude is an antidote towards those kinds of things because the more that you practice it, the more that you're training your brain, you're repatterning your brain to look first for what is good, to notice and appreciate the good things in your life. Although I am grateful for your brown Trekkie Dax today, mate. <laughs> They're beige, actually, mate. Get it right. <laughs> beige, off-white torp. I'm, I'm actually interested just on the, on the point that you were making a second ago. Does that translate into our relationships as well? 
taking note of the little things as well? Hugely. It's such an important part of a relationship and it's often overlooked because, and it's easy to overlook. I mean, you know, you... You've got your daily life, you've got all of these things happening. We do start to take our partners for granted after a while. And um, and one of the most powerful things that impacts a relationship actually is the level of gratitude that occurs between the partners, is noticing and appreciating. And so what happens with relationships over time is that we stop noticing. So the, the things that we first captivated us about our partner that we that were, you know, we were learning and that were exciting, that were new and we really notice those, we just start to take those for granted. So we stop noticing them or maybe we still notice them, but we're so used to them that we fail to appreciate. Um, in America, uh, in the Death and Marriage um, Bureau, the third most cited reason for divorce is feeling unappreciated in your relationship. Similar statistics come out too in Australia with our um, Relationships Australia survey and those kinds of things. So it's actually a really big player in the health of a relationship is noticing and appreciating the little things about your partner or noticing and appreciating and sort of highlighting the good Looking first for the strengths, looking first for what's good in your relationship and feeling comfortable for the things that you do have rather than um, putting the dominant emphasis on the things that aren't working or the things that you don't have. That's gold. gold. I reckon that's gold, Robbo. I think there's absolute gold in there and a soap on a rope to follow. Soap on a rope. I was going to say, I reckon that Lee is working hard for a soap on a rope and uh, it, may just, it, may, it may just be a gold medal for that one. <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> yes, so good. Such it's a proud on the wall next to your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so proud. Um, Lee, talk me through gratitude deficit disorder in the workplace. How does that work and what is mm, it? Okay, that's a really nice question and that's sort of one of my pet topics really is that um, because I've done quite a lot of research on gratitude and gratitude, how it operates at the individual level um, and then how it operates more at a sort of collective level and um, again, just you know, in the same way as I was saying about being in a romantic relationship that we tend to end up taking the good qualities for granted. I think that... Um, organizations uh, often place a lot of emphasis on sort of structure and strategy and making sure you have the right technology and perhaps sometimes don't give the same level of credit to um, cult the culture of a workplace, which is more of that invisible feeling about how it is that we treat each other, how it is that we get things done around here. And I've been really interested in looking at how do we take gratitude and sort of infuse it into the culture of a workplace because the research is so clearly showing that it's beneficial for you as an individual, it's beneficial for you in a relationship and what my research is interested in looking at, well, do we take that up another level and is it beneficial in a workplace? And it turns out it is a really powerful driver for employee satisfaction and employee happiness in a relationship. And again, you know, large-scale surveys. There was a huge survey done in the United States a few years ago with over 35,000 employees. Very fascinating study because what they did was they asked the bosses, what do you think your employees most want from this workplace? And then they asked the same question to the employees. The bosses said, the thing that my employees most want is a pay rise. What they're most interested in is money. Um, but when the question was asked to the employees, actually money didn't feature in their top three. The top three were 
feeling noticed and appreciated for what you had done, feeling included in on things, um, and feeling valued. So all of those things, being included, feeling valued, feeling noticed and appreciated, they're all parts of gratitude because essentially what, you know, what gratitude is, is when you express gratitude to someone else, what you're really saying in that, in that moment is, I see you and I value you. Um, and that is something that is so easily overlooked in a workplace because everyone's busy doing their various jobs and when you have that moment where someone does turn around and, and essentially says, I see you and I value what you're doing, you know, you you are included and you are contributing something of value to this workplace, it's a very primal and powerful feeling for the receiver because, again, if we go back to sort of the evolutionary explanation, we know that we didn't survive alone. The only way that we could survive was to be a part of a tribe. And so we're very wired to be social creatures and most of us are strongly wired to feel that we are part of a group and that we are contributing something of value because when we feel like we're not contributing something of value, then whether we know it or not, subconsciously we're feeling like, oh, I'm not, if I'm not contributing something of value to this tribe, I, my safety, my security, my membership of this tribe is under threat. And if I'm not a part of this tribe, I don't know how I'm going to survive. So we're very strongly wired to feel that we're making a contribution, to feel that we're doing something of value. And the way that we learn about that, well, yes, definitely we learn it through our paycheck. Um, but actually, at a more emotional level, the way that we learn about that is for someone to express gratitude to us. And then the other element of bringing gratitude into the workplace is that gratitude is a particularly powerful positive emotion and it's a little bit different to some other positive emotions so let's say we talk about the positive emotion of joy um joy is an amazing positive emotion to have but what makes me feel joyful could be very different to you guys what makes you two feel joyful i mean i'm all for brown tracky dacks i've I'm not sure they would make me feel joyful. Beige, beige, let's get right. Beige, sorry, no, didn't we say off-white? Yeah, (laughs) talk. Well, then, yeah, you know, you've got joy all over my face right now. Um, But (laughs) what I'm saying is that things that trigger joy in me are different to you. But the thing about gratitude is it's a a relational emotion. So um, let's say that Darren does something for me. Let's say we work together and he does something for me in the workplace that makes me feel grateful that I notice and appreciate what he's done and I feel thankful for, you know, him bringing me a cup of coffee or helping me out with a project or um, just appreciating his particularly good sense of fashion in the workplace as it may be. Yeah, I told you I had good fashion sense, Gaz. <laughs> Don't forget that I, I wear glasses, so I can't really <laughs> comment on that. So do I. Maybe that explains it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but when I feel when I feel joy, it's a beautiful positive emotion that's contained within myself. It's not necessarily shared by others, but when I feel grateful, I'm almost always compelled to share that. So Darren does something nice for me and I feel grateful and almost always I'm going to turn around and say, thanks, you know, I really appreciate that you did that for me. And so what happens with gratitude is you get two for the price of one. You get um, me feeling good that someone has done something for me and you get Darren feeling good that he's been on the receiving end of being noticed and appreciated. And so that's why I think it's so powerful in a workplace because 
Um, certainly, I want all of those positive emotions in a workplace. Uh, being a positive psychologist, I'm not going to say anything different to that. But where I think gratitude has that extra leverage point is it's relational. So you get two people feeling the benefits of gratitude, not just one. So is is the demand on us today, whether it be the workplace, our families, the sheer pace of life and or social media, are we finding ourselves now driven by what's next, like this fear of missing out? Because it just seems to me that a lot of things that we have talked about and we hear about are about just taking time to stop, reflect, appreciate, um, actually look, listen. Is it psychologically, we've just been driven so much today by what's going on around us digitally and face-to-face that we're not, we're too worried about what's next. We're not appreciating what's now. Yeah, I think that would be a fair thing to say. I mean, a lot of what we're studying in positive psychology around uh, techniques like gratitude, you know, um, keeping a gratitude journal, keeping a gratitude diary, taking uh, photographs on your phone of things that you feel grateful for, Um, other techniques like savouring, for example. So savouring is when you're having that little moment of good, you know, the first taste of some lint chocolate or um, pavlova, you know, whatever it happens to be, really actually savouring that. Techniques like mindfulness, they are actually all Techniques to enhance our positive emotions, but as you say, they're also techniques that just help us to put, to give us a pause, um, even if it's a two-second pause, just to learn how to slow time down for a bit, connect back in with our emotions, connect back in with our body, connect back in with our environment, connect back in with our children or the people around us, and just give ourselves that little bit of emotional breathing space that I think we're all just gasping for because, as you say, you know, it's the pace of life is just crazy and um, I don't have a big sort of structural solution for how it is that we can slow life down but I think what what positive psychology offers is more of these sort of individual techniques and practices that you can learn so that you have a little bit more control over the pace of things in your own life. We had a conversation with a friend of yours uh, who actually introduced us, Carolyn Adams-Miller, who is a good friend of the show. We've had her on a number of times and we love, actually love having Carol on the show. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a good friend of mine too and I love her as well. Oh, she's fantastic. And our audience love hearing Carol on the show. One of the things we talked about, Lee, was we talked about social media and how that is increasing, let's call it an emotion, uh, envy amongst us, is that we are envious of what we see. And then the flip side of that is the empathy that we have as an emotion is dropping Is that something you are seeing through your studies and your research? It's not something that I'm directly seeing in my own research, no. But I think, I mean, there are different ways in which we we utilise social media. And I do definitely agree that um, there is a temptation for people to use social media to sort of... uh, Let's say it's a it's an impression management tool um, to really sort of say, look at me, I look amazing, I'm on this great holiday, I have this latest X, I have this latest Y, and when we're using social media in that way, um, it's it's doing a number of potentially negative things. One is it's creating envy in others, um, but it's also sort of contributing to this mindset of consumerism. And that, you know, what we have and what we do is somehow more important than who we are. The, the, 
I think the challenge with social media is to resist that temptation um, and try and put across who we are more than what we do or what we have. And that's not just a challenge in social media. That's a challenge everywhere. I mean, I, when I did my PhD, which was many, many years ago now, I, it was at a time in Australia where, um, we, it was Paul Keating and we had the, the recession we had to have, and there was a lot of unemployment. And so I was studying the the psychological fallout of people who are unemployed. And what I, I learned a lot through that PhD, but one of the things that is a seemingly small thing that I've carried with me now for 20 plus years is I don't ask people when I first meet them, what do you do? Um, because what I learn in working with a whole bunch of um, unemployed people is that that's just a mortifying question for them because society judges who you are based on what you do. And at that point in their time, they were between work. So they couldn't answer this kind of social norm question. Um so, you know, it's using social media to sort of – we can use social media in good ways too. And that's, I guess, where I'm more interested in is how do we use social media as a mechanism to spread positive emotions and spread uplifting news, highlight people's good qualities, highlight great stories, um, to sort of counteract the big media, I mean, we've we just come out of the end of the, the US elections and I think, you know, there's a lot of people feeling a bit shaken as a result of that. And how do we use social media as a more positive way of connecting with each other? And what the research does show around that is that if you use social media as a tool to um, uplift other people's emotions, if you share a positive if you share positive news on your social media, um, the researchers have looked at, well, what does that mean for other people? And actually, envy isn't a huge response. I think it's the third highest response. The first highest response when you share positive news is that people are happy for you. 64% of your network will respond with happiness about you sharing good news. As long as it's kind of real and authentic news, it's not that glitzy impression management type of news. And what's more, research also shows that Positive emotions are contagious. They spread through our social networks and they spread by up to three degrees of freedom. So, and, oh, sorry, that was a very sort of, <laughs> um, that was me with my glasses on. <laughs> three degrees of freedom. No, what I mean by that is um, <laughs> that they, they spread up to three times through your network. So I post something up on my website that's, you know, a good news story, Some, two more of my friends will repost it. So there's a, there's a person who, a, a friend of a friend of a friend of mine who I don't actually personally know who will receive the benefit of that good news post. Martin Seligman, who is seen as being a leader in your industry or your area, mm-hmm. he talks about a thing called psychological immunisation. Now, yeah. it sounds terribly impressive to Robbo and I, can you just elaborate on what that is and what it means and how do, how do we take advantage of that? Really what he's talking about is the idea that the more that we build up our capacity, our understanding, the more techniques we have to build up our positive emotions to understand and utilise our strengths to form grateful and supportive relationships, these things um, inoculate or immunize us against life's challenges. So they act as a bit of a buffering effect. So, you know, I mentioned before that um, life is 
black and white. It's night and day. It's yin and yang. There's no escaping challenge or loss in our life. That's just a part of our life. And in a way, we don't actually want to escape those things because, you know, most people will tell you that it's been times of challenge and times of hardship for them that have helped them to get a different perspective on life, have helped them to reappreciate simple things in life, have shown them kind of what they're made of, you know, those moments of stress and challenge that you really dig deep and find out what you're made of. So it's not about avoiding the negative things, but what we want to do is be sensible and give ourselves a bit of a toolkit, a positive toolkit, so that when we do face life's challenges, we can um, more proactively address them. And that's what Marty's talking about when he talks about psychological immunization. He's saying, you know, in the same way that we all know we should have um, a healthy diet and we should eat from the five food groups in the same way that we all know that we should physically exercise on a regular basis because when we physically exercise on a regular basis and we have a healthy diet, we're less likely to catch the flu. We're less likely to catch that bug. We're less likely to break down physically. It's the same thing psychologically. So the more we engage in these psychological exercises, you know, of which positive psychology has really had a lot of influence in um, helping with helping us to decide what are the effective psychological exercises that we can do each day, the more that we build up our psychological fitness, the more immunized we are against getting unwell, psychologically unwell, the less likely we will experience depression and anxiety and those kinds of things. I think it's fair that we should send a shout out to Marty, uh, Robbo, Marty Sullivan. Uh, big fan of the show. Oh, Marto. Yeah. Marto. <laughs> the Martinator. Yeah. The Martster. <laughs> the Martster. <laughs> Before we let you go, I've got a little setup. I'd be interested in your perspective on this from positive psychology. Uh, early this year, late last year, I read a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, and it talked about deep work being work that stretches you slightly but you pour 100% of your focus into your work as opposed to shallow work where you are jumping between all little bits and pieces during the day. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the power of doing that and gave a lot of examples. It's it's a terrific book which we've done a review on the show and I've since heard him interviewed and he said that focus will be the IQ of the future. So on the show on our show, we've been interested in talking to people like yourself to say, well, what's, what's, what's your view on focus? And from a positive psychology perspective, when we talk about uh, immunization, when we talk about gratitude, it takes time to sit down and focus on it. Do you have a perspective on focus and how we might go about putting that into our day? Well, I certainly agree with the idea. I think focus and the ability to pay attention is just like a fundamental skill that we need in order to not only achieve at work, but also to build up our kind of psychological bank account. Um, What we'd be looking at is those practices that I talked to you about before. So um, in my book, for example, the Strength-Based Parenting book, I I talk to the parents about, you know, what is the philosophy behind Strength-Based Parenting? How do you know what a strength is in your child? How can you spot what a strength is? Um, And then what are some things that you can do to help build that strength? But I also talk in the second half of the book about some of the sort of broader psychological capacities that as parents we need ourselves, but should also be seeking to build up in our kids that then 
help kids to be strength-based. And one of those psychological capacities is absolutely the ability to pay attention, to have focus. What I talk about in my book is some... Well, I mean, there's lots of ways of doing attention training and training ourselves to have... There's two aspects to focus, at least the way I see it. One is aiming, learning how to aim your focus in on something. Um, So, you know, a kind of pretty regular occurrence in my house right now with my beautiful, beautiful, beautiful nine-year-old daughter, Emily, is trying to get her school shoes on before we leave the front door. Um, And so the conversation goes something along the lines of, I'm rushing around getting lunch boxes ready and what have you, and Em, can you put your shoes on? She says, yes. She she says yes, and I can tell she fully intends to do that, but um, she can't aim her focus in on the shoes because the TV is going and everything else is happening. So, you know, I have to, like, turn the TV off and I have to stop running around like a mad chicken and actually stand with her and help her maintain that focus. But the second element of focus is so – the first element is aim. The first – the second element is sustain um, and that's, I haven't read this book, but um, the deep work that, that, that would be the sort of sustained attention where you're stretching yourself and you, you're having that kind of hundred percent focus. And so as parents, we're looking at how do we, how do we find some fun ways to build into the family routine, some techniques that help our kids both to aim their attention and then sustain their attention. So, you know, flipping forward, my son, who's 13, he's, he's developmentally pretty good at aiming his attention these days. It, but the issue that he has is the sustaining part. That is so good, Lee. I love that. Aim and sustain. That's that's the thing, isn't it? It's actually not prioritising and then the ability to be able to stay with it. They're the two things I think Cal Newport talks about in deep work is that making sure you have your priorities and then being able to get rid of all the distractions and teach yourself to – that's really good. That's gold. That's, that's gold gold. That's gold part of gold. Gold, great. Gold plated gold. Gold plated gold, even better. It's very hard to sustain your attention. I know when I was writing the book, um, I would say, okay, you know, I've got the whole day now and what a luxury just to sit down and have a whole day on writing the book and I would stay at home, kids would go off to school, I'd stay in my pyjamas till you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I wouldn't answer my emails from the university but I would often find myself in that day not being able to keep that sustained attention. I I'll just take the dog for a walk and really I should put the washing on and and I probably need to, you know, just quickly make this phone call and just my attention being scattered here and there and everywhere. But I guess just getting back to the final answer of that question is from a positive psychology perspective, how do we help ourselves enhance our focus? And as parents, how do we help our kids do that? And really that's just getting back to um, those basic, those key psychological, positive psychology practices. So bringing gratitude in as a, just a really an important part of the, the family environment, you know, helping your kids to notice and appreciate the good things in life because every time they notice something good, that's aiming their attention, that's helping them to develop their focus. Um, bringing mindfulness. Mindfulness, I think, is a, a really lovely technique to bring into families. But I do a lot of mindfulness work with schools, and it's also becoming big in the workplace as well. Mindfulness is a, you know, it's a particular form of attention training that is enjoyable most of the time, not all of the time. I mean, part of mindfulness is allowing yourself to be present and witness the negative thoughts that are happening inside you. But more often than not, people come out of mindfulness feeling very calm. So you. 
getting your attention training, but you're getting the positive psychology benefits of gratitude and mindfulness and savoring that come with that. So I'm going to hand to Robbo. Are you going to go the? I think we're going to do a nifty or? ninety. I think. I, All right. I think. All right. I, I think we've got a nifty ninety going on here. Well, you better make it good because this has been a big show. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's nifty ninety. All right. So here we go. What's one thing you need to stop doing? Procrastinating. Procrastinating. What's the last unessential thing that you got rid of from your life? Jewelry. What's your favourite pizza topping? Margarita. Something you don't want to die and regret not doing? Letting my children know that I love them. Three things you'd take with you if your house was on fire? Photographs. That's all. Tim Tams or Oreos? Tim Tams, they're Australian. Your most treasured possession? You might have answered that one a couple of questions ago. (laughs) My family. My photos. Name a movie you've watched more than ten times? Karate Kid. The last book you read? Magna Zabanska's Reckoning. Three words to describe yourself? Loving, playful and conscientious. And finally, if you're feeling a bit flat, what song would you pick to get your mojo going? Get on your feet, come on, get happy, gotta chase all cares away. Forget your troubles and just get happy, you better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready. There you go, guys. It must work because we've got a positive psychologist telling us it's got to work, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lee, this has been absolutely terrific. I just have, I have one one very quick final question uh, as part of the Nifty 90. We interviewed a guy from the UK called Philip Hesketh and you mentioned journaling earlier in the show. And he said there's some research coming out now that says if you take your notes journaling on a digital computer, you are basically taking notes and you're recording. If you do it with pen and paper, you actually improve your comprehension. Obviously, you journal. Are you a pen and paper person or are you a computer person? And are you seeing that research to be true? Oh, I am a pen and paper person all the way. Um, very old school in that kind of regard. Um, yeah, look, I'm not o- over that research, but I've certainly seen enough of it to suggest that there's something to do with the movement of the hand um, that triggers different parts of our brain compared to when we're writing, sorry, when we're journaling, compared to typing. Um, there is there is something about the brain that responds more to handwriting those things out that gives us more of a sense of making meaning of what it is that we're journaling. Um, but I, yeah, I've just always journaled through pen and paper and it's because I don't journal in a linear way. So I, I'll write an idea down and then an arrow goes off to somewhere else and then there'll be a little smiley face or a sad face or a scribble or... Um, you know, some kind of bad drawing that I've done or I stick a post-it note in here or there and it's it's just a bit too chaotic for me to do it um, on the screen. Do you have a pen of choice? I don't. It's just whatever is handy, whatever actually has ink in it in my house. (laughs) Ink or lead? Sometimes both. Depends. (laughs) This has been terrific. I've got to say this really, I've got a page of notes myself here that I I'm taking away. It's been uh, it's been an absolute ripper. It's been so much fun, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And um, great questions. You know, you, you got me to talk about my favourite topics, which is always a joy for me. And um, and I have great gratitude for you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are just tuning in, we are going to kick ass. Supreme, the Mojo Radio Show. That was a really cool way to start 2017. 
Yeah, and if if anybody's interested in more work that Professor Lee is doing, um, there's a book coming out, Lee's book, uh, in June of 2017 called The Strength Switch, How the New Science of Strength-Based Parenting will help your children and your teen to flourish. Uh, it's coming out in June through Penguin. Um, and the other thing is if you want to check out Lee's work, just go to a website, subscribe to her newsletter. And if you do, Lee will send you the three key questions a parent needs to ask in order to be a great parent and strengthen the relationship you have with your kids. So very giving, very, very smart. Uh, we love having professors. It makes us look good, mate, doesn't it? It makes us look way more smart than we are, that's for sure. Smarter. <laughs> smarter. 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 <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. So uh, have you been into the caveman to get you inspired for uh, the first couple of weeks of 2017? You seem a bit jacked up this morning. I am a bit jacked up. I've had the caveman. Right. I've had some caveman coffee MCT oil. <laughs> and I thought you seemed a bit chatty. I dropped this thing called a Revis. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes, you've, you've told me about these. Now, there is a backstory is that I was doing a speaking gig in Sydney late last year. And at the end of my gig this Lovely lady walked up to me and said, uh, you want to try these things called Revies. It's what I work on. And Revies is essentially an energy strip, but it's something's 40 grams of caffeine in a strip. No, it's not dissimilar wow. to a Listerine strip. <laughs> so it's like an instant ca- instant caffeine here. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, and it, it is. I mean, I, uh, I've tried a couple of times right now when you do need a little recharge, uh, this thing is the bomb and it's such a great story and I started talking to Jackie about how this happened and the work they've been through and I thought it would make a perfect conversation for getting after it. Okay, roll it. At the Mojo Radio Show, we love hearing about people who are chasing their dreams. People who are getting after it. Gotta have soda rocking. So, folks, this segment is about us finding people that we are inspired by who have had an idea but rather just sit and think and talk about it. They're actually out there doing it and getting after it. Revy's is a product just like that, and we're very thankful to have Jackie Nolan Nalen, the co-founder of Revy's Energy Strips, on the line. Jackie, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. One of our favourite topics, caffeine, really. (laughs) One of mine too. (laughs) I am a bit fascinated by this stuff because I am all jacked. Jacked up on Mountain Dew. This stuff is, uh, it's amazing. Now, Jackie, the product is called Revy's. Let's just describe exactly what a Revy's is because this is a brand new category, which I'm quite fascinated by. Describe to me exactly what this thing is that you are manufacturing. Well, I guess the best way to describe it is that it's a coffee in your pocket that works faster. <laughs> so uh, basically, it's a it's a caffeine strip um, that dissolves in your tongue, and um, it's got forty milligrams of caffeine, which is equivalent to half a cup of coffee. It's uh, sugar free, less than a calorie, and works faster than coffee. So it's a take anywhere coffee buzz. Got to be happy with that. That's right. I've yeah, had, when you I've don't had about time. six. If we, could, if we could hurry along a bit, that'd be good. Because uh, <laughs> come on, come on, come on, come on. Um, the best way for me to describe it, and we'll get into the business elements in a second, but to put people in the picture, the best way for me to describe this is if you imagined having a Band-Aid 
and you open up a Band-Aid packet and inside is a Wrigley's chewing gum strip, but it'd be like a tenth of the width of it. And that essentially is 40 milligrams of caffeine. Would that be the best way to kind of describe it? Do you think just people get their heads around what this thing is, what, what a Revy's is? I guess, uh, to be honest with you, Gary, we're still trying to find the best way um, to describe it. But uh, it's a bit like, because it's dissolvable, it's a bit like the, if you remember the Listerine strips that used to be. Yes, I would describe it as a little stick of sunshine, perhaps. <laughs> That's actually a really good way to describe it. It is a Listerine strip. It's a bit like a Listerine strip, yes, but um, slightly yeah. more dense. But it it dissolves on your tongue and uh, rather than chewing gum, which you would spit out. Yeah. Now, where did this idea come from? Uh, well, um, my husband and I are co-founders and we've always been using uh, caffeine before you go to the gym or anything like that. And we... Uh, well, my husband would always forget because he's quite forgetful. <laughs> and the, the problem with coffee is that you need to take it uh, 20 minutes before you kind of go out. Otherwise, you could get a stitch or, or anything else. So um, he was at an expo one day and met a company that was doing um, teeth whitening strips. And, uh, and he asked them if they could put caffeine on one. And that's where the idea was born. And then we had about two years of research and development, um, went through some market research. We did some market testing, went through a few formulations, and uh, here we are. At the start of the show, you said you have had a little difficulty in being able to describe it to people. And I, I suspect that's because you are creating a brand new category that's, which doesn't exist Tell me, tell me how you've approached that. Through trial and error. <laughs> um, it, it's just been, um, when we first started out, it, it was literally just on the streets, talking to people, doing um, our market research, getting people to try it and ask them what they think, um, that sort of thing. So it's, it's literally just been refining, just continually refining how we explain it to people and what we say and and all that sort of thing. So they're available now. Where do, where do we get a hold of them? So they're available through Chemist Warehouse and also available online. The whole idea of this product being a brand new category, and there's a, there's a rule in marketing warfare that if you can't own a category, if somebody already owns a category, create your own. In looking the, with the journey you've been on with this, Jackie, what's been the greatest challenge, do you think, for you and your husband from – having the idea at the expo to where you sit today, if you look back and said, you know, if I was giving advice to somebody, the biggest challenge they're likely to face is this. What would that be? Just one. <laughs> give me the um, biggest one. You can, you, can actually, you, yeah. you can give me a couple if you want, but what's the, what's, what do you think is the biggest one that people should be aware of? I guess uh, the, the biggest challenge that we personally had was um, just raising the awareness of the product. Because I mean, we've been around since about – well, we've been kind of testing the market and, and in convenience stores and things like that since about um, 2013. And uh, we've recently launched with Chemist Warehouse only in the last couple of months. So one of the biggest issues for us was raising awareness with limited distribution because we can tell people where what about the product, but it's not as easy for them to, to be able to walk into any store and pick it up. So... I think that was that was kind of one of the things that we struggled with the most, and also because it is a completely new category, um, where it's at in the market, you know, whether it was a would sit with the energy drinks as an energy product, whether it would go um, 
with the sports nutrition, that whether it would sit on the counter, I mean, that, that was something that we struggled with as well. Who do you find has taken this on, Jackie? You talked about athletes and that sort of stuff. Where has this found a home so far? We are in a lot of the sports nutrition um, plans for a lot of the Australian elite teams. We're in the NRL, um, members of the NRL take it, the AFL, Australian Institute of Sports. We've contacted recently by the USA Olympic Committee, which is very exciting. Um, we've just announced a partnership with Leeds United, and we also are the major energy supplier to the Parramatta Eels. All oh, right. Are uh, the Essendon AFL team uh, are they on this as well? <laughs> um, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Gary, that's naughty. <laughs> hey, I've just... Great team. Go the Bombers. <laughs> so, Jackie, how long has this journey been for you? From the minute your husband walked into the expo site, met these guys with the teeth whitening strip to today, how long has that been? Oh, God. <laughs> Five years maybe from from just it being an idea to it turning into um, a, a real business. I'm interested to know just on that, have you ever thought about combining the two? get a coffee buzz and whiten your teeth at the same time? <laughs> well, the, the teeth whitening strip, you actually take a little bit differently. They, they actually go on your teeth, whereas this this goes on your tongue. Right, okay. Be a good idea, yeah. though. But it's the same film. Yeah. It, it would be a great idea, yes. The coffee buzz without <laughs> the brown teeth. Yeah, exactly. In that time of doing it, Jackie, for you and your husband, you're working together. How has that been? And and what lessons have you drawn about working with your husband during this journey? Oh, <laughs> um, it's been really good actually. D- during this time, we we actually had my uh, we had our first son just before we um, launched with Revies, and that was kind of the thing that we cu- we we decided together that we wanted to kind of have our own company. And you know, having a child makes a big difference. About makes you look at the world differently and think, oh, you know, what do I want to teach my child and things like that. So I think that that helped us launch Revies and kind of really become quite focused on, on achieving something. And, um, and then we had a second child in the middle of it all. Oh, really? uh, Yes. Well, you like putting pressure on yourself, don't you? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. So there's, there's been a lot of challenges and we've, um, we, we, we have had, I think it's made us, it's made us a lot stronger as a couple. We've, we've both got different, very different strengths um, in the workforce and also uh, just as people. So I think that the thing that we learnt was the strength of family and to kind of work together and how we can work together and that we're in it together and to use each other's strengths. Is it a side hustle for you guys or are you guys all in on revies? We're all in. Um, all in, why? There has yeah, there has been times that that one of us has has gone to work full time just to to make up that extra bit of salary and and keep Revy's going. Um, but we're both yeah hundred hundred percent committed to to the business and and making it work. I suspect that it's been an enormous amount of time, uh, energy investment going into Revy's in the last five years. When you and your husband look at what you've been through, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the last. Five years. Has it been worth it? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's a, we're at a really, really exciting time um, at the moment with the business. We're, we're going through an investment raise. We're, um, we've, we've got all these elite sports. We, 
people that are that are using the product and advocating the product and and we get contacted almost weekly by a new team which is which is amazing it's really great and we're it's, it's just a really exciting time for us and and we can only see it, it growing and and getting better and we've learned so many lessons along the way um yeah, we're, we're really excited about where it could go. What's the biggest lesson you've learned along the way? Just keep going. <laughs> Don't give up. Don't give up. That's right. Don't give up and uh, triple your budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> eat, eat more strips. Don't give up. Get after it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we've, um, we haven't done this before on the show, Jackie, but there's probably a big sponsorship opportunity for you here. So Robbo coaches an under-14s junior rugby team. And what I'm thinking is if we gave each of those kids a couple of these strips and some red cordial, they would be (laughs) unstoppable. Uh. Just don't tell their parents. (laughs) I'm just going to, just to bring it all together, Rev, it's an ultra-thin mouth strip full of caffeine and it's the sort of thing you put into your pocket, your purse, your gym bag, your glove box, um, they work. They, and the other, the other thing I like about this is it, it works in 30 or 40 seconds, supposedly. Is that right, Jackie? That's right. I mean, it, it's, it's different for each person, really. But that's the, the anecdotal evidence we've been, we've, I, we, we've all kind of been told and feel ourselves. So. I, I can actually give you an observational result on that. Gary dropped one just before this interview. <laughs> He's gone from sitting quietly on the other side of the console to running around the room sounding, I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew. And took about, that took about 30 seconds. So you're pretty close, yeah. I'm going to cover you like a spider monkey. <laughs> so whereabouts do I find it in Chemist Warehouse? Is it at the counter with, you know, all the, the point of sale products or is it on a shelf somewhere or whereabouts, do you know? It's in the sports nutrition section. Because I play old boys rugby, so I'd be interested in giving it a go. Oh, do you? Well, I'll be more than happy to send you some. That'd be awesome. I'd love to yeah, give it a crack. Yeah, of course. If you just pass on your address, I'll, I'll send some out. Because we've actually got some two, we've got two flavours. And I think, Gary, all I had in my bag was my emergency stash. And um, I didn't have any packets or anything. <laughs> emergency <which> stash. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. <laughs> the emergency stash. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true, though. <laughs> That's a good line, you know, Jackie, because I can see a lot of people carrying these as an emergency stash, is that when they, and we all have them, we all have those moments where we have to perform, we're not in the zone and we actually need to really, you know, pick up. I think these sorts of things, you know, like having an emergency stash, that type of thing, whether it be for an athlete, uh, I can yeah. see it finding a home with taxi drivers, truck drivers, uh, yeah. And that sort of stuff. I think it really is an interesting product. Well, that that, that is definitely the the plan. We would like to um, make it a bit more mainstream in the long term. But at the moment, what we're finding is that the elite sports and elite athletes really get the product and understand the benefits, and um, and that's so how we when we actually first launched, we looked at all the markets that you were saying we were looking at all the different possibilities of where this could go. And um, as we've kind of grown, we've we've found that we've become more and more and more and more niche because um, that's where the, the main interest is at the moment. Um, but we definitely see it growing out into to becoming something that, that is really useful for, for you know, busy mums and professionals who are working late and like you're saying, taxi and truck drivers and shift workers and all the rest of it because the latest – Research is more and more is showing that smaller, more frequent amounts of caffeine actually work better 
which is great because you're not getting the detriments of having caffeine because um, you're only having the smaller amounts, but you're getting them when you need them. And um, the other research shows that the more fatigued you are, the less amount of caffeine you need to, to make it actually work. So which is great for um, endurance athletes, for example. So when you're kind of coming up to the last couple of Ks and you need that tiny little boost, then Revy's are brilliant for that because you don't need to digest it. You don't need to have it with water. You can just have that small amount of caffeine that you need just to get to that end bit rather than preloading at the very start. So to be clear, the more fatigued you are, the less caffeine it takes to get you going again, is that right? That's right. That's what the research has been showing, particularly for endurance sports and things like that. Yeah, because too much caffeine is is detrimental, not enough. It doesn't do anything. So getting getting that amount right, and I think that's that's where Revy's kind of has been key in in those areas, is that, you know, you can really test your own um, how much caffeine you need personally because it works so quickly and because you can, you know, you can have it on the go and all that sort of stuff. A half-time revy it'll be for me then. Just on that point then, if you are talking about a person in the workplace or a person doing a normal, let's say, a normal's day work in the business setting, how how have you found people are using revies and how much would they be using? Um, it's really, really individual. I mean, me personally, my husband and I, we, as I mentioned before, we've we had a son and then we had a baby um, who's 15 months now. So there was a lot of sleepless nights um, and then kind of working <laughs> in an office. So so me, uh, I would personally maybe have one to two strips when a day. Um, I might have a coffee in the morning and then a strip in the afternoon. Um, other people I know, uh, some people who are kind of marathon runners who who have been training and, and they only have it in their long run, so they might have one strip a week. And um, other people might have a bit more. My husband has has maybe two in the morning before he goes for his run and then one kind of in the afternoon. So it just, yeah, it just depends on, on how you live your life and how much caffeine you you need and all that sort of stuff. It's actually very interesting. That whole caffeine uh, caffeine area is very interesting. And we're prepared to experiment some more with it. <laughs> okay. Bring it on, caffeine me, baby. <laughs> Well, you have to give me your address so I can send you some proper packets. I will. No, no, yeah, I will. I'll definitely give it a go. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll share them around the, the Withered Oaks rugby team and we'll see how it goes. That'd be great. <laughs> the Withered Oaks. You can let me know what you think. I will. It's a fantastic innovation and I think what captivated me the most was creating a brand new category in the challenges. That, that brings its own complexities to business when you are creating a whole new model that doesn't exist in the marketplace, Jackie. And um, congratulations to you and husband. It sounds like you, you're really getting after it now and there are some great things about to happen. Really appreciate you spending the time on the Mojo Radio Show and uh, we're going to watch your journey with keen interest. <laughs> thank you so much and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Just going to pop one more of these strips. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. No. Okay, I've got to get me some of those. <laughs> I've got to say, mate, they're very good. Yeah, they sound it. <laughs> but what I also like, I mean, being a minimalist, and I, when I travel, 
to do jobs or whatever. I mean, I like mm. to have the absolute minimum of stuff with me. It's all carry-on luggage, nothing to excess. What I love about these things is they weigh nothing. You can stick them in your journal, you can stick them in your wallet, you can stick them in your top pocket or your backpack and you wouldn't even know they're there. But it's just those moments where you just need a little something-something to get you through and you don't want to go another cup of coffee or a cup of coffee's not around or they're serving Blend 43 from an urn. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. You go, I can't do it. Uh, So I I like this product and I like the work that they've, they've invested a lot of time and energy into it. Once again, folks, we are not associated with the product. There's nothing in it for us. We just think it's a cool product. God of Rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high-voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. All right, let's finish with a bit of music. What do you got? Well, I've got Lady Gaga. Really? (laughs) Now, exactly. Now, this is the first time Lady Gaga has hit the stage here at the Mojo Radio Show. And last. I I can't. I'll be honest, it's not on my Spotify list. It's not an album that I would go out and buy. However, you were out on the tractor in the back paddock (laughs) listening to it yesterday, weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) I do admire her mojo. I do admire her attitude to life. I do admire her seemingly being off purpose to her little monsters, whether that's true or not, I don't know because I don't know her personally. And to be fair to her too, uh, talking about getting after it, her getting after it levels are certainly sky high. Well, they are. And I read a quote by Lady Gaga, which will take us out of the show, but just back to the positive psychology and back to the, the fact that some people over the Christmas New Year period didn't have a good time for whatever reason. But Lady Gaga said, I've learned that my sadness never destroyed what I... I've learned that my sadness never destroyed what was great about me. You just have to go back to that greatness. Find that little one light that's left. I'm lucky I found the one glimmer stored away. And I think that quite often... When the bad things do happen, it tends to take our soul, our spirit, our mo. takes everything away from us. But the turning point, and Tate Fletcher back at the start of Rocktober talked about this, is that when you hit rock bottom, then you start looking around at how you could be of service to others or you start looking for the goodness inside you. And I think Lady Gaga is a classic example of that. So I like that quote. And I think for the year ahead, folks, look for that greatness, dig down, find it, don't let other people or other things steal your mojo. And, uh, mate, let's, let's finish with a little bit of the lady. All right, what do you got? Uh, well, like, I'm, I'm open to it, but my thought was, why don't we play a little uh, baby? I was born this way. All right, well, I can't play that because I don't have a cassette deck in the studio anymore, mate, so I'll have to play it off MP3. We're out. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on In a glass of purple boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far
drag, just be a queen. Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Give yourself prudence and love your friends. Subway can't rejoice the truth. And the religion of the insecure. I must be myself, respect my youth. A different love is not sin. Believe capital H, I am. Hey, yeah. I know the love and love this red could end. Me, I'm on it, bro, they buy Whether you're broke or evergreen, your black, white, beige, show la descent, your Lebanese, your Orient. Whether like disabilities left you outcast for leader teased, rejoice and love yourself today, cause baby, you were born no this way. No matter gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or beige, show la Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>